Hi folks, welcome to CLD Talks, I'm your host Connor Maxwell. Today we're speaking to Joe Gibb who takes us through his CLD experience from working in residential childcare and how he would love for residential childcare to become part of the CLD family. It's a really interesting conversation, I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here's Joe Gibb. So Joe, it'd be brilliant if you could just tell us a wee bit about yourself and your career in CLD. Thanks, Connor. Firstly, I'd just like to thank you for uh, inviting me onto the podcast. I feel really privileged and it's a really good opportunity for me to talk about maybe, uh, I suppose, the first instance, feeling a bit of an imposter. Um, because I suppose traditional CLD roots in terms of working uh, with, with children, families, etc., etc., my kind of journey's been a bit different. And some people might say, is that CLD? And I would say, I work, yeah, I work in residential childcare and I have done for the bulk of my, my career, which spans uh, to date 17 years. I've done a wee tiny bit of maybe classes, generic youth work, um, mm. but on the whole, I've worked with children who are pretty much classed as being involuntary clients, you know, so that really kind of raises a question about is it actually youth work? Could you class it as youth work, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I would say, absolutely. I would say, when's anything ever voluntary? You know, that's my kind of whole kind of argument with that. You know, we're all kind of, I suppose, conditioned in a certain sense to do things, uh, whether it's kind of, you know, um, you're not aware of it. But essentially, as we know, uh, there's various kind of um, pressures uh, that, that can make us do uh, things that we're not aware of. But anyway, I, so, um, I pretty much uh, come from Stevenson in North Ayrshire. Lived there all my life. I was born in Irvine, so I suppose you can put that in there. Aye. Born in Irvine, Irvine Central, 1977. So I'm a bit an old codger compared to yourself. <laughs> uh, and uh, pretty much uh, lived in Stevenson up until recently, where I moved over the border into Solcoats. Um, but prior to that, I was a Stevenson boy, born and bred. How's the move uh, been? Uh, it's great. You know, I moved to a bigger house, and I suppose that's another thing as well. I've kind of, kind of climbed the ladder a wee bit uh, within my working life which means, you know, I'm kind of living in an area that's a bit more affluent, if you can call it that, which then raises me to question, you know, I'm working with kind of people who are really quite impoverished at times, whereby I'm kind of living a wee bit further up the, the food chain, if you like. So there's a bit of a kind of moral dilemma there for me. Um, but as I say, kind of getting used to it, but it's that bit about always remembering, keeping yourself grounded, and everybody's one pay packet away from poverty. That's how I view things, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's taken a long, long time to move a wee bit further up, but essentially could be very quickly kind of come crashing down. Aye, and it's always important to remember your roots, remember where Aye. you came from, because oh, if you absolutely. lose that, then you know that they'll struggle in this job if you forget where you've came from. Yep, 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 absolutely. So, raised in Stevenson, as I say, and pretty much uh, early 80s was a difficult time for everybody in society. Um, there was a, a real kind of element of mass unemployment. Um, my dad was affected by that. He uh, pretty much uh, did the work for about five years, you know, and uh, you know it wasn't until the kind of towards the, the kind of about 1980, 86, 87, that he pretty much was in, in kind of full-time employment and he got a job at Huntleson Power Station. It uh, sits between kind of Fairley and Largs. Um, so that was a really good, <coughs> a kind of real game changer for us. But, you know, um, prior to that, I remember kind of living in relative poverty, you know, and, and, and never, it never escapes you. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose 
uh, a young family. Um, we lived, you know, in a council house. Uh, and you know, another kind of key thing for me was like, recognizing that I was kind of like, living in revel- relative poverty, even when my dad mm-hmm. was working. We still might be class at in this day and age, he's been, you know, the working poor, you know, as we kind of uh, refer to it in these days. Um, my mum, she ended up getting ME in the mid 80s, uh, and that, that was a real pressure on the family. She was really, you know, it was kind of described as being yuppie, yuppie flu back then, uh, and you know, it wasn't really kind of well understood, uh, but now. Pretty much, it's, it's uh, fibro myalgia or something. I think they call it now. Really. That's the, the more. Aye, I think that's how you say it. I, I don't. Know, I have no idea. Fibromyalgia. That's that. That's the one. Yes, make my false teeth back in for that one. <laughs> uh, and uh, pretty much um, that 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 again was a real kind of, uh, challenge for the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my mum had that for uh, a number of years, um, and pretty much she was out of employment for the kind of late eighties, nineteen eighty nine right through to about 1994. Really, I, I, I really see this illness, you know, myself and my brother and my sister. Can I bore the brunt in that a wee bit? You know, mum was out of action, put a bit of pressure on the family. Mum and dad eventually split up, like a lot of families do. And, um, you know, I, I pretty much relied on my community to, mm-hmm. to keep me going. You know, so all my, my links that I had pretty much um, locally, um, so prior to mom getting ill, she was a, a youth worker herself. She ran a youth club locally in, in Stevenson, in the Hayrox cool. area. Uh, and, um, you know, and she was also a member of the community council. So I think that a real kind of, um, probably um, a real kind of role modeling aspect for me in my younger my younger days, you know. Uh, and uh, I didn't realise it then, but really kind of, that was a kind of foundation getting laid for me for recognising that, you know, the importance of the community. And also the bit about you know activism and they uh, get involved in your community. Um, really, my mum was really quite kind of proud of that, you know. But sadly, because of the ME, it kind of came to a hold, uh, a halt for a number of years. Um, but for me, uh, despite the, some of the challenges, I kind of grown up uh, in that, that kind of area uh, in that era as well. The thing that really came kind of was a strong uh, kind of uh, theme for me was my attendance at various clubs. And you know, I attended the boys, local boys club, Pumpney Hawks. I went to the karate, uh, the BB, the BBs. I did an active week basically. Aye. And then later on in my uh, my youth, I, I done boxing. Uh, I also had my own wee job at a, quite a young age, the age of uh, twelve. I was a paper boy in the, the local papers. Now Wednesday it was the Sawcoats and the Ross and Herald. Made a bit of money for that, thirty pound. Could be could be earned when you're young, you know. So That's not bad, isn't it? I was making I. Uh, and then a wee bit later, I was a milk boy. So I was like, you know, pretty much uh, making a good good bit of money. And I was about 14, 15, you know, I was making like 60, 70 pounds a week. It wasn't too bad, it wasn't too shabby. Aye. And uh, that kind of kept me going, you know. And uh, I liked football, played football. And it was like one of the ones whereby I wasn't that great a football player. So the BBs had various football teams, the A team, the B team, the Z team. And uh, I was like, lucky to get in the B team, basically. And I knew it wasn't that. You know? <laughs> but first, this is this was first Stevenson Boys uh, Boys Brigade. It was a great boys brigade. It was more like a youth club. It wasn't your traditional boys brigade. You played pool, you did all the computers, you know, it was like then a wee bit of kind of religious kind of stuff at the beginning, like a wee quick quiz, you know, to get uh-huh. that out of the way. And then you're pretty much with a youth club, it was brilliant. And, and the boatman of Stevenson, the top end in the boatman, and the boatman was a bit more I suppose there's a bit more of a community feel to the of Stevenson. Uh, and a lot of kind of people who you know, were passionate about their, their, their community down there. So it meant there was a lot more resources in the Bottom of Stevenson. 
versus where I was from was the top end, you know, and uh, it was a wee bit of a kind of, uh, kind of, I suppose, what do you call it, rivalry between the two areas of Stevenson. Yeah. Uh, some, what was kind of gang fighting and stuff like that, you know, and stuff like that. But no, I was never involved in that, but essentially I was able still to attend the clubs and that, uh, down there, including the karate. And that was massive for me. I never forgot the kind of, the strength that that kind of brought for me as a young a young boy growing up, you know, some despite some of the family challenges, mm-hmm. um, but just just that that whole strength that I created, um, and that was the, the, the bit about getting access to positive role models for me that again that I never forgot as well. There's that bit about all these people, including the guy I worked for in the milk, <laughs> Sam. You know, it was like these people who were really really strong role models, and the uh, the youth the youth leaders. The people that run the karate, you know, and the guy, and eventually my, my, my later teen years, my boxing coach was a massive uh, influence on me, you know, my, yeah. my boxing coaches, I should say. And again, I wasn't the best boxer, but for me, it was really important at that point in time that I had that uh, routine in my life. Um, yeah. Because again, there's a lot of, kind of periods uh, having left school, which is another kind of key stage in my life. Left school in 1994. I remember that because. It was a USA 94 football tournament, the World Cup. Yeah, you're probably too young to him, you were. Uh, 93. <laughs> right, so you were, uh, you were uh, so it was a World Cup. Uh, I was uh, 16, and uh, I remember leaving school just at that time. And uh, it was, uh, I remember just the whole, but there wasn't much going on in terms of employment because it was a transition between the old YTS, youth training scheme, funding for employers, and then it changed the skill seekers. So there wasn't much going on in terms of training opportunities for kids. So I was actually pretty much unemployed for leaving school for a wee while. And, um, you know, that was a, a really kind of, I suppose, bit of bad luck, you know, being leaving school at that, that period in time. And also the bit of it was, there was just nothing going on. Uh-huh. So I had to keep myself busy. And one of the, the key things for me was uh, the boxing Still, I think it was the, I was oldest milk boy in the West. I was still doing the milk at the age of nineteen, you know. So it was like anyone. <laughs> You're the milk uh, man. You know, I was an old man. Was actually a milk boy. Um, so, uh, but I was really kind of just thankful for that, you know. Looking back, uh, but it's also that uh, solid routine for you as well, isn't it? That's yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. uh, I and that's that's pretty much it, you know. And I remember, you know, despite some of the family stuff, uh, doing the boxing. Uh, Gave me a wee bit of a celebrity in my local community. You know, it was like uh, I was uh, travelling through to Springside, uh, which is like um, still North Ayrshire, but it's like just heading towards East Ayrshire. Mm-hmm. I, I used to head to Springside and do the boxing out there with uh, the Mullen family, who are quite like a, uh, a well-known family in terms of boxing. The new, that club is now no longer there, but there's a club in Irvine run by the same family called Vimbra, and it's a well-established and a successful club. So that, that, that was great for me, just being part of that, you know, just yeah. having that routine. So did you uh, fight or did you just train? I, I fought, I, I, I think it's about, in total, I've done, done it over two spells. So I've done it initially, and then, oh, I'm trying to remember the time scales here, mid-90s, uh, and then I've done it again in the early 2000s. Um, mm-hmm. And just before I met my wife, actually, early 2000s, and I, uh, and I stopped the boxing, uh, uh, 2000 and I think it was 2002, 2003 when I started college and uh, right. the reason I, I had to make a decision in terms of you know, I, I knew that um, there wasn't much going on employment wise and I had to get qualifications due to you know, getting qualifications at school, I, I got two standard grades or something, just wasn't interested at school mm-hmm. I was one of the guys you'd, you know, you'd kind of typically be looking out the window of folk walking by you know, in the street going, I wish I was Tim 
Neil no. Allen was sitting here. That was, that was the exact same team right through to Premier League 1, right through to you know, when I left school and fourth year. Uh, just, just bored the education. You know, it just did not kind of chime with me. I kind of knew I had some sort of emotional intelligence. I knew I wasn't silly, but I just wasn't interested in, in, in uh, kind of formal education for, for a number of reasons, probably. Right. Um, but I always had a really kind of good, just um, critical kind of mind. And it was quite reflective, you know, just in terms of trying to work out why things happened the way it happened in society, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but again, yeah, I think one thing about the new Labour government when they came in, like Tony Blair's uh, guys, was that they had a real kind of emphasis on further education and expansion of that. So for me, uh, I've met, met my wife, I had a bit of aspiration, I've met uh, Karen. And uh, from that, um, basically, I decided right, I need to go to college. I was working in the slaughterhouse at this point in time. Lucky to tell you, I wasn't a milk boy all, all my days, you know. I was working <laughs> a, a local slaughterhouse for a period. And uh, pretty much, I didn't want to do that forever. And I, was a post, I worked as a postman as well for a while. And uh, I decided, no, I need to do something. Uh, and I, I managed to go to an HNC in social sciences. And that's really when my time working with young people started. Mm-hmm. because when I was at college uh, down at North Ayrshire, it was at Cowan, and it's now called Ayrshire, Ayrshire College, but at that point in time it was James, James Watt campus as a kind of spin-off of the Inverclyde uh, kind of James Watt College. Right. Uh, and from there, I managed to pass that HNC in social sciences by hooker by crook. It was a real challenge. Uh, I managed to get through it, and I was actually thinking about going into social work. Uh, and during my, my, my time at the college, um, i seen an advert in the local paper you know, still adding adverts in the local paper for, 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 for jobs. Yeah. Uh, and there was a local school, a local residential school in Stevenson. Uh, I was aware of it all my days because I used to get chases off the boys and all that kind of stuff when I was a wee boy, you know, <laughs> uh, and like, kind of stuff like that. Or the residential school part, it's a residential and a, and a secure. Mm-hmm. So the boys at the residential school, you would actually, was a burn between my house and the state. The residential school, we used to go and fling stones at the, the just, just typical wee boys, nothing, no malice in it, just getting chases, you know. Boys being boys, and big, just... And the, and, the, and the big boys at residential school would chases and things like that. Then later in my teens, I used to play football against them. We used to go there and play, get into the security unit, I went into the games hall, which was like a dual, dual used by the residential, or the open school, as they call it, and the security unit. And it wouldn't happen these days. They got the local work, care workers would come out and go, listen, boys, you want a wee game of football? We'd get, and we'd get into the games hall and play against these boys and, and secure. Little did I know it in my, you know, my early 20s, I'd actually start working in there. Yeah. So, and, and that, that place was called was called Kerlaw. So Kerlaw is, is now a well-known uh, residential school for all the wrong reasons in uh, my, my field because um, it's the last real prominent abuse inquiry that's taken place in terms of uh, looked after children who are accommodated in Scotland. So the Kerlaw inquiry was published, and that was a uh, 2009, uh, and you know it was quite a damning report. So mm-hmm. I started working in there, having passed the interview just luckily, um, and uh, started working in Secure at 20. I think it was 23, 23 and a half, and uh, I get eaten alive with the young guys in there. I thought mm-hmm. the streetwise guy, but in uh, Insecure, working with a staff group who are quite well established. And, uh, there was a, and there was a group of us who had just started, like sessional workers, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, same way as you do youth work. And uh, we were quite young. So a couple of who I'm talking, guys who, are, who actually want the CLD today, uh, who, I, who I used to work with back in the day, who all started the sessional workers. And uh, basically, uh, the, the young guys who were in there, you know, through the kind of care system, essentially, they were new and secure, uh, late teens, 
and uh, you know, for each 15, 16, that kind of mm-hmm. somewhere in for serious offences like murder, rape, etc., etc., somewhere in for welfare issues such mm-hmm. as neglect. You know, so it was a real kind of mix of children and young people. And if for me, I was, you know, as much as it was a real steep learning curve, and there's that divide between the old staff and the new staff. Um, very quickly learned from some good role models about the importance of relationship and building relationships up with, with, with these young guys. And uh, pretty much eventually, uh, I kind of get accepted by these young guys as being uh, a, a care worker, stroke yeah. worker, you know. And, and the, the interesting thing about the secure uh, unit was that um, basically it's a mini community. So you've got a pretty much in the afternoon, you're like a youth worker. Mm-hmm. And then during the day when the boys are at school doing their schoolwork, you're more doing kind of social worker type stuff, report writing, you know, kind of incident reports, kind of stuff like that. So having come in with no experience, it was a real steep learning curve. And pretty much I was totally unaware of the history of Kerlo. I had a couple of family members that worked there, you know, years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I was there for about a year, and then a big inquiry started. So I started uh, the summer uh, 2004, and I was still there the summer 2005. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, there's a big inquiry because uh, somebody was so blue within the school about abuse, and it really led to a massive inquiry about mm-hmm. the history of the, school, of the school going back to the late 60s up to the, the present day, up to about 2004. That was what they were looking at. A number of people, uh, one person ended up in prison, uh, having uh, been convicted of serious offences, a worker. Uh, and also a number of people ended up being uh, on the schedule, essentially a schedule two list, which means they're uh, uh, barred for working with vulnerable vulnerable groups. Right, so okay. it really uh, um, was a big inquiry. It took, took a number, of, it took a wee while. A report was written. Uh, and that... I, again, I wasn't really uh, aware of you know, what was happening, but what I did see was a, a cultural change within that setting mm-hmm. because the senior management team get moved and they bring in a new senior management team who were a Glasgow City Council senior management team because Kerlow was ran by Glasgow City Council, right. despite the fact that it was in Stevenson. So I, was, I, I kind of witnessed a cultural change and that kind of made me kind of quite curious as to, you know, What's, what's, what's this all about? Management, leadership, you know, ethics, values, etc., etc. Yeah. Was that a positive uh, cultural change? Ah, yeah. Uh, to be honest with you, the secure unit uh, and the open school were two separate entities. Right. So the secure unit was well, in my opinion, well ran. It was like well resourced. It was like Girfek ahead of time. It had every single resource you would imagine: mm-hmm. the cams team, you know, support for other uh, psychiatry, psychologists. Um, you know, family workers, there was every, 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 every day was under that you needed in a, in a mini community. Resort school was a bit different. There's a number of reasons behind that, including how kids were placed there and also an unskilled workforce um, and a, various, a variety of other reasons that, yeah. again, made me quite curious. So I left Kirlaw in 2005 when the decision was made to shut the, the whole establishment, eventually shut in 2006. Right. There was plans to build a brand new secure unit, but I get mothballed and uh, St. Phillips residential, sorry, St. Phillips secure unit get built up near Drew instead. Right. We just took the plans and built that up there. So I then moved to North Ayrshire Council, worked in residential North Ayrshire uh, and then quickly left there just due to the fact I was a temporary worker and uh, I was looking for training. There wasn't much training on offer mm-hmm. and I got an opportunity to go to Jailsland School, which is run by the Church of Scotland up in Beeth. So I arrived at Jailsland School and, uh, you know, and it was an open school 
So it was like a residential school. And again, very probably similar to what the residential school would have been like at Kerlaw. And uh, it was, to be honest, really quite chaotic. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know there, was, there was some good care work getting done, mm-hmm. uh, some good relationships. But actually, just because of the way the kids, the teenage guys were coming in, it was hard to kind of have some sort of routine and pattern. But there were still some cracking experiences as well, done some great, great trips, et cetera, et cetera. But I began kind of questioning, what, what is this all about? You know, what, what, is this the way care should be? Is this the way we should be engaging with children? Uh, and I began kind of just kind of thinking about there must be a better way. And that's when I actually began looking at a uh, further study. And uh, I'd done an HNC when I was there as well in social care. They put me through right. an HNC, which was great. <coughs> SVQ and care as well. And uh, just when I was here, I, I applied to Strathclyde to do community education. Uh, and uh, I got accepted on the course 2009. I'd done it part-time. So I'd done the first, uh, I'd done four modules. And Annette Coburn and Eddie, Eddie Began uh, were two of the lecturers. Sorry, Eddie was actually in my course. Eddie was a, a, a student, believe it or not. Right. Uh, and, new, uh, new Eddie's at UWS as a lecturer. New, new Eddie's got his doctorate, he's a, he's a lecturer. So, um, so I'd done, I done the first, first four modules. And whilst I was there, there was a, I was paying them myself. I think it was £250 a module or something. Right. And uh, I, went, I went and done, I, I done night shift at Jules until I wanted to be able to do that. And uh, I, I, I was, uh, to be honest, be quite struggling with the, with the money to, to pay the, the modules. And there was an opportunity to transfer onto a master's course in residential care. So I applied to the master's course at Strathclyde and was lucky enough to get accepted onto it, despite not having an undergraduate qualification. So I got onto that course and I was planning to return back to the finish the course at Strathclyde. Yeah. But in between the times of starting the, the, the master's and finishing it, Strathclyde Morph Bald Ed course, mm-hmm. uh, which then left me in a bit of a state of flux. So I was kind of thinking, what did I do next? Um, so I'd done a postgraduate in uh, child protection after that at UWS. And I was kind of waiting about uh, to see what was happening. And eventually, UWS brought the ComEd course back on to line and uh, went into the course and finished it, uh, yeah. which, was really, which was really kind of uh, worthwhile. It was always my objective, you know, to get that uh, community education, CLD qualification. Aye. And no many so people will get a master's first and then no, go back to get bizarre. the. Do you know that's? <laughs> it's, it's really, it is really bizarre. But I really so how come you got into the master's first? Because usually that is the the process is yeah. you need your degree to or yeah, experience. Yeah. So I think a couple a number of reasons was like a lack of interest in the masters across right. my sector, across residential. So we're kind of looking to fill spaces. To be honest with you, I think that's one of the reasons. Now there's a real interest in the masters, but back then it was like. It was actually had been running at that point in time. That was 2010 for nine years. It started in 2001. Okay. So there's a lot of kind of you know workers who who, who are now kind of lecturers who started doing that master's course. They're kind of prominent in in, in, in our in my field of residential care. Uh, but then it had to, kind of, there wasn't much of an uptake for it. And then but now there is because the threshold in terms of qualifications has increased. So there's a new standard has been written. That is now kind of asking for at some levels, you know, they're talking about a master's qualification for managers and stuff. So um, people are now interested in the masters. So it so works. So just hook of a trick, I got into it and I had to write an assignment and stuff like that. And it took some of the grades that I'd achieved at Strathclyde as a benchmark that would suggest right. I could pass the course. So I managed to pass and um, then thankfully get back to the comrades stuff and passed that. 
and you know it's really my, my passion is about you know um, empowering people is about um, empowering, empowering the most disadvantaged people in society uh, and that, that for me is children who and their families who become looked after because these are these are kids who, who pretty much typically don't engage with services and and for me these are the, uh, kind of some of the most vulnerable children and young people uh, in society and I'm very passionate about the fact that I think the CLD workforce should really consider at some stage in their career a wee shot at residential childcare because mm-hmm. arguably I would suggest it's a specialist form of youth work. Uh, but the caveat of that would be that the vast majority of our the people that I work with who, who are in direct practice who do a great job uh, don't have a high level of qualifications. So the, the, the registration requirements at the moment to register as a worker uh, is HNC level. So right. HNC, SVQ3, you can, work, you can work as a residential worker. There's a, there has been a new standard written, as I mentioned, and now they're, asking, they're going to be asking for a level nine qualification, which is university BA level. Okay. But that, 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 that's currently on hold because the, there was a, a, a report written called the National Residential Child Care Initiative 2009, that was, uh, I think, written, or published in 2009. And they, that was when that was suggested, a level nine qualification. But since then, that's been put on hold because the National Care, Care Review started. And you probably know that has been the, called the promise. Yeah. So that the promise is kind of just pretty much starting implementation of the findings from the promise. And what they're saying, what care experience people and people with lived experience are saying is, actually, values are more important than qualifications for us. It's about what the, the carer brings in terms of their value base rather than the qualification. <clears throat> so for me, I'm kind of, it's a double-edged sword. I would say that the two of them go hand in hand. I think residential work is is, is uh, intellectual work. You know, I think you need to have a, a level of understanding about trauma, about society, about politics. You know, it, it's quite, far, quite far-reaching. And, and because of that, I think at the current time, the best qualification I think that people can achieve is the CLD <coughs> qualification mm-hmm. because it's a broad, it offers a broad, broad uh, you know, opportunity for, for, for practitioners to come in and move across boundaries. You know, and it's so, so varied. Aye. So, so, you, so, so you can register with the SSC with your ComEd qualification and register as a, as a residential worker. So you, you've got your registration. Mm-hmm. And then you can also have a dual registration with the CLD Standards Council. And you can be registered as a community worker. So for me, the NRCCI recommendations, they recommend a social pedagogical, that's something they mentioned, a social pedagogy qualification. And my argument is that the CLD um, kind of suite of um, qualifications is as close as you're going to get to social pedagogy. And, and I think the, the solution is there, that the CLD community or people who are doing CLD or currently doing RCC can actually access the teachings that uh, ComEd supports and actually practice really effectively with, with, with children and families who have experienced, you know, high levels of trauma, adversities, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my, I suppose that's one of my, my, my passionate kind of urges us to say to the CLD community, please, please, yeah. please value, you know, these children who are in your community and consider having a wee opportunity to work because I think you'll get hooked in it. 
You know, uh, has there been any uh, research done about youth workers being in residential or anything like that that you no, know about? No, no, uh, and, and this is uh, what you maybe describe as a threshold concept. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm talking conversations with Annette Coburn, Sinead Gormley, and Eddie uh, Began about exploring that. Right, okay. uh, doing some, doing a think piece on that and some additional uh, research uh, to tease that out in respect of the current kind of, um, kind of, I suppose, fashionable kind of idea about social pedagogy, uh, about residential childcare qualifications, about social work qualifications, um, and you know the common qualifications and see where they all merge, and you know and and kind of try and kind of work out actually. In terms of that whole notion of being a border pedagogues and border mm-hmm. pedagogy, is that actually, uh, as as the Scottish kind of version of social pedagogy, actually community education, is that actually what you're looking for with some wee tweaks, you know? So I'm not saying you can pull it off the shelf and say this is social pedagogy, mm-hmm. but a lot of the theorists that support social pedagogy also support community education. Uh, so it's a really interesting time and a very exciting time for me uh, whereby I think we could be kind of exploring something really interesting here. Yeah, and definitely. I, I, I would love to see uh, the community education community, um, which is my, 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 preferred terms, my preferred term is community education rather than CLD, but I think it's just what I grew up with, you know, uh, actually kind of claim residential childcare as theirs because historically residential childcare is a, is a profession because it is, it's, it's, a, it's a recognised profession in the SSC. But in terms of claiming it, social work has been a really kind of difficult relationship with social work as a, as a profession. And residential childcare has been seen as a, a, a placement of last resort. It's been seen as, you know, a lot of stigma attached to residential ch- childcare because of the abuse inquiries. And also, it's a bit about, you know, it's really expensive as well. When you place a kid in care, it's a minimum £2,000 a week. And it can oh, rise it? up to be eight thousand. Aye, it can rise up to be eight thousand pound a week. So my question to the guys listening to this podcast is, and also with the wider RCC community and the wider society, why would you actually think about having the least qualified people look after the most, you know, and I use this term loosely, damaged children and families in society? You wouldn't send you. You wouldn't. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go to a dentist who's got an HNC and say, "Listen, pull my teeth out." You know, right. so why would you go to uh, send your kids that are really traumatised to a care establishment that's got um, practitioners with quite a kind of a base level qualification? Uh, and and by the way, I kind of like to emphasise the fact that I'm actually passionate about residential care. There's a lot of great practice going on there, and also there's a lot of organisations that have got qualified workers. Uh, and it doesn't mean you need to be qualified. There's a lot of variables that contribute to being a good practitioner. You know. Yeah. And being that, well, I would class as a specialist youth worker, and that's what I think we should be aspiring to as a group of practitioners. Yeah, but I think that for if if this research takes place and the way it goes, I think that then it could look at it could potentially be a section of CLD or community education, however it is, and it's also maybe to recognise that um, people who might have a baseline qualification to aspire if they choose to also go to university and get that higher qualification because there's a lot of good workers and brilliant workers that might not have the piece of paper, but that yeah. could p- potentially be an interesting route for the people to maybe go, do yeah. you know what, maybe I will yeah. 
try out university because I, I like the idea mm-hmm. of this. There's, so there's a massive argument here. Sorry, you go when you. Sorry, so I was just going to so how then would you sort of see um, youth workers and community educators and CLD workers coming into work in residential childcare? Like, what is it that they think, bring to it? I think it's the you know the value base. I think it's that whole the, the teachings that you know that, that are taught at, at university. But I think it's that you know that. But in terms of you uh, know just a, a nat a natural disposition to to promote uh, fairness, which equates to social justice, and that's really threads right through uh, teachings. But also, I must add that social work also has that kind of thread as well. But the problem, I think, social work as a profession, and I'm, I'm speaking as an outsider here because I'm not a social worker, yeah. is that they've been engulfed by a rhetoric around child protection, you know, and a real, a real demand on their services. So social workers come in where, uh, and look at uh, the, the challenges through a lens of doing community-based social work, which, again, there's a lot of parallels with community education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then very much uh, get burnt out because they realise, my God, I can't do that uh, direct work because we've got a caseload of 35 kids to look after here and families. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely no social worker's point of view. It, so it's no, it's no social worker's um, fault. It's pretty much... Yeah. But they're underfunded and they're, yeah. they're underfunded and they've got too much caseloads for the majority as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and result, when you go to conferences in respect to residential care, and you look across Europe and across the across to North America. There's uh, some kind of kind of commonalities in terms of theorists. There's one guy who you always hear about at um, conferences, and a guy called Yuri Bronfenbrenner. And if you think about the Gerfeck National Practice Model, so the kind of well-being indicators, you've got a triangle in the middle. Uh, that's an ecological triangle of assessment. And Bronfenbrenner's a guy that kind of uh, devised that. You know, you're thinking of the microsystem, the mezzo, the exo, and the macro. He's the guy that kind of came up with that kind of concept. And it's really kind of well used in, in uh, a lot of fields, including education, to, right. do, to uh, engage in assessment, you know. But Bronfenbrenner was a, a child and youth care worker as well. Um, uh, and he was the founding father of CYC in America. Uh, and he came up with the, the notion or the phrase that residential child care isn't a rocket science. It's more complicated than that. Mm. And I think that just demonstrates that actually how complicated that is uh, and you consider all the different variables you need to work with. It's the same with youth work, you know, it's the same with working with families in the community. Um, but I think there's a real kind of, um, that, that, that just frames it nicely for me. Uh, and, you know, he, he's basically a guy who I can, I can I look to and use that uh, ecological um, model to kind of help kind of explain a lot of stuff to, to colleagues and stuff like that as well. You yeah. know, about what's going on in society, all the different kind of, the layers we he describes as the bi-directional influences, which create stress you know, within these competing systems. Um, so I, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely a worthwhile kind of concept to kind of hang on to. Um, and in terms of the where I see the kind of people who are qualified, qualified kind of, um, kind of how, how that would fit within residential, I think if you look at the promise just now, which is just, you know, the, um, there's a, an element where they talk about supporting families. And... Basically, there's uh, the principles of family support, and basically there's ten principles. You know, if you think about that, the principles, which is community-based support, responsive and timely, work with family assets, empowerment and agency, being flexible, being holistic, being therapeutic, being non-stigmatizing, being patient, 
and it needs to be underpinned by the children's rights. So you can actually see how the ten principles actually are really, really kind of closely aligned with CLD values, closely aligned with how we are educated as, as practitioners. And actually, you've got the ability to actually work across boundaries. So not only can we work in residential, we can go and do family work. We can go yeah. and do you know, work in communities. So there's a clear kind of thread there with you know, our profession. Uh, and this is what I'm kind of, I suppose, trying to get to is there's a clear identity within the comed field. Whereas within the residential childcare field, it's kind of quite blurred and skewed. And I think social work uh, professionals and people in residential will disagree with me, you know, and say, actually, social work's claimed residential and we don't want to let it go. But I think like any relationship, how you're used and how you have historically been used tells a story. And for me, residential childcare needs to get used far, far, far closer to intervention rather than a reactive service. So, but anyway. Yeah. But then <laughs> you've got that experience, but so but that that's what's really important because if yep. you, this idea is coming from where you are just now, but then how that could potentially develop when there's research put into it, there's um, pilot projects or however it might develop, it could turn yep. into the best way to potentially, or a new way to support these people, which should be I, I, looked at. I, it shouldn't be dismissed yep. or just go, just because you already know something, you shouldn't yep. then just dismiss something new because it's not what you already know. That's it. And also, I think, never thought I'd mention neoliberalism in a, in a podcast, but <laughs> I think for that perspective, if you look at it through that lens, the qualification that we've currently got and that kind of whole community of practice, actually, it's economical to actually use that because it's there. It's already established in Scotland. There's a really strong tradition of community education in Scotland. And actually, the academic, the comed academic Mark Smith talks about, actually, again, he's, he suggests community education as social pedagogy, you know. And then there's another academic, Mark Smith, the social work academic writes about residential child care, he talks about social pedagogy and what he kind of talks about really is, in my opinion, community education, you know. So there's really kind of some academic interest already about the, the, the benefits of that. Uh, and it's just for that to be further teased out, you know. And when you think about it, if people want a secure income, and, I, and it's not just all about that, but in a statutory statute service such as social work, residential childcare is always going to be there. You know, there's a 10-year plan to try and, you know, reduce that as part mm -hmm. of the promise. But people are, are guaranteed, you know, ready work, you know, and the work that's going to be there for them in a while. So when you're looking at funded posts for comed workers and listening to Gordon Mackey's podcast, that was something that kind of came through his career. The fact that he was always in funded posts for a, a, yeah. a, a fair part of his time. I think the one of the, the, the real kind of benefits of working within, a, within social work when you're kind of a, a bit of an imposter uh, because you're not really a social worker as such, um, is that you're guaranteed, you know, a, a career that's get that's get kind of, uh, various uh, avenues you can go down, yeah. you know. Um, but I so that, that's pretty much that. That's my that's me off my soapbox. You'll be you'll be pleased to hear. But very passionate <laughs> about, about the, the, the the qualifications aspect of the workforce, and I do recognise that there's a lot of people in practice in residential and also working in youth clubs who haven't got a degree mm -hmm. and only have the capacity for a number of reasons to uh, achieve a degree. I mean, we shouldn't, you know, 
you know, just uh, forget about these people. There is a place for these people. Absolutely, they offer a lot. Um, but also, you need to have a, a, a real kind of blend. Uh, and I think people who are kind of also well qualified, and it really acts as a kind of a real strong check and balance because of the history of residential child care. Just come back to that. The, the first prominent inquiry in modern times was called the Pindown Inquiry in Staffordshire. And the issue was that there was a one well-qualified worker, uh, the, the manager, he was a social work qualified guy, mm-hmm. and uh, the rest of the workers weren't qualified in this um, service. And pretty much this guy was uh, devised a model of care called Pindown. And it was uh, essentially a, a skewed view of what is good practice. And people didn't challenge him for years. Even the police didn't challenge him because right. it's so he- it was held in high, you know, high esteem. It was saved in the local authority a fortune because they weren't having to uh, kind of place kids out of district, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and from that, you know, that, that led to abuse because that guy wasn't actually credible, but mm-hmm. nobody was able to challenge him. So that's another reason why you do need to have people who are able to, you know, kind of professionally challenge and have that kind of. Uh, what well, I can always refer it to is that bit about having a, it's like your hard drive, you know, and it really depends on what's in your hard drive, your software, if, you, if you're kind of using the kind of computer metaphor, you know, so you've got your right software in there so you can actually function properly. Right. And uh, I really can't emphasise that enough. Uh, what I would love to know, um, which I know you might not be able to speak fully about it, is just how has COVID impacted residential childcare and where you are just now? Because we know in everywhere oh. how it's more spoke about with CLD and there's loads of different yeah. community groups that's came about. And yeah. but for uh-huh. your point of view and your perspective, so, it'll be quite interesting. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So what well, I currently work for a, a charity called Compass Child and Family Services, and I'm uh, the service manager, so I'm in charge of running a, a service, a house. So my my kind of I've, I've written a wee bit about residential care, and you know, kind of. I wouldn't say academically, but certainly think pieces, and there was a couple of things published in the Scottish Journal for Residential Childcare, and wrote a few blogs and stuff like that. And I've, what, I, what I've always wrote about is a bit about the kind of, what, what you would see as being utopia in residential care to make it work. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm passionately of the opinion that, you know, what we've got at the moment, where I, what the service I run, is close to utopia. So close to a family model of care that you can probably get because the trustees and my CEO are passionate about providing high quality care to children and young people. Right. And that's mean I'm able to, I'm able to manage how children come in, the admissions, you know, and the, the, kind of the balance between kind of like, um, you know, trying to make it, you know, in terms of as, as family oriented as possible. Uh, so we've kind of managed that. We're, we're registered for four children, but we never go any uh, higher than three children. And we really can measure, you know, the balance of kind of uh, risk and need. Uh, okay. We also use social pedagogy as a guiding pers- uh, um, perspective, uh, and you know that, that that kind of works quite well. Some of the, you know, some of the kind of concepts surrounding that, and again, I'll emphasise about that that COVID is very closely aligned to social pedagogy, which means we take positive risks. And so, with regard to COVID, we follow the national guidelines, and you know we, we adequately risk assess, we balance a bit up in respect to you know the. the the likelihood that a kid's going to you know, experience more harm uh, through not getting access to normal resources versus being essentially kind of warehoused in a house and not getting stuff. So we're very creative. We take guidance for uh, public health. And so, for example, family contacts are a contentious issue. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, because you're essentially a different a different bubble, you know. But these kids really crave their con their, and actually contact is a, a, a phase we use. It's family time, you know. Family contact is quite clinical, yeah. so it's like family time. And, and so for us, we've took advice from uh, public health and you know the, the local authorities. These these children uh, where their, their families are located and they have been able to continue with family time, continue with kids getting overnights uh, and stuff like that. And that's really essential for them, their well-being and mental health, you know? 100%. Uh, and because of that, COVID's not been a massive issue. You know, the, the, the care team are you know, very authentic and are, are, are off, of the, off of the wings, as we say, you know? Uh, and and, and it's, not been, it's not been a massive uh, problem for us because we're a small service, because yeah. we've got low numbers. Uh, and because of the, the lack of red tape that you might find in a local authority, you know. Um, so and, and I'd like to add as well that local authorities have got a, have got a hard task and I have a massive respect, respect for local authorities who provide care and support to children and young people. Well, they've not got the, uh, I suppose, the the option of managing the referrals as easy as, as we can because they're duty-bound to place children. You know, and uh, one of their services. Yeah. Uh, if there's risk in the community, children needs to come into a children's house. It's simple as that, you know. And uh, sometimes it's, a, it's an emergency basis, um, and, and that's how it works, you know. So they do their very best, and I know all local authorities in Scotland are trying very hard to, to make that better as part of the part of the promise, you know. Um, that's so, brilliant, but the news haven't had a major impact with COVID, uh, and they've still uh, been able to do that because that's so important. Yeah. That they were able to continue family time and it's as, no crazy impact to you, man. That's really, really good. Yeah, and they've also made use of the, the outdoors, and that's been a great thing as well, especially Aye. for the younger, younger kids. You know, getting out there and going down to you know local. There's, there's a place called the Fairy Glen. Take one of our kids quite a lot. Uh, go to the beach. You know, do all that kind of outdoorsy stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you know, um, it, it's went it's went really well. Uh, and also the kids, you know. The fact that social media has sometimes got a lot of negatives, mm-hmm. but actually during this um, kind of period in, in history, it's been quite a blessing for some of our older older kids. You know, the fact that they still get kind of communication with friends, communication with what's going on in the wider world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so the kind of whole social media stuff has actually been quite good. Um, so, I, I so COVID. My 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 main concern is the impact on welfare and well-being. Of kids and families, mm-hmm. rather than COVID itself, you know. Um, but my so it's, it's really I'm really proud to have been given the opportunity to, to run that service and do something that's quite unique as well. You know, having spoken about the early days at Care Law yeah. and the, the learning that's taken, been taken from having worked there uh, and right through my time and seeing kind of common common themes uh, as 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 I've progressed in my career. So it's like uh, 17 years. Uh, in total, just approaching 17 years. Um, that's a long time, you know, and uh, it's been really important for me to be a career residential worker, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. You don't get a lot of career residential workers. Usually what happens is that people get qualified and you get into social work or they get into the CLD field and uh, they use residential as a, as a stepping stone, yeah. which means your kind of quality is, is a wee bit diluted, you know. Yeah. Um, but also sometimes people can't cope either, staff and can so they sometimes the role that they can only maybe last maybe four years or a I, certain amount I, of time, I, and then I, they need to go out because they struggle. Uh, that's uh, you make a great point here as well. 
and that's how I think it's really important people in terms of their career development have got qualifications that allow them naturally to get breaks. You know, to, for example, if you were CLD qualified, you could say to your manager, by the way, there's a scope for me to move if you're from South Lanarkshire. I know that's where you're, yeah. you're from. So um, you could say to your manager, by the way, I need a wee break. Any chance of getting me a stint in local children's, children's house doing a bland tyre? Or equally, a, res, a, a resi worker can say, any chance of doing a swap with somebody that's in CLD? I, I'm coming qualified. That person's got, you know, that could happen quite naturally. Mm-hmm. And you can actually use that as part of your career development. And having that qualification is actually one of the reasons why I would say, let's let's go for it. You know, let's try and see what we can do. Qualifications on everything. Values are the most important thing. Yep. But qualifications help you make sense of things, you know, and they're able to practice safely. Um, you know, especially when it comes to complex, you know, kind of needs and, and complex trauma. Um, you've got to have that kind of knowledge base behind you. Definitely, man. Um, has there been any major challenges or major setbacks that you've had in your career that you'd like to sort of talk about? Oh, good, good question. I, I, I would say just that. that and how have you learned from them? I suppose, and that's the other bit. How have you came out of that, and what did you learn? I, I think when you come up against the, you know, the negative aspect of um, providing, you know. Care to, to kids and families. Sometimes bad things happen that are in your control. So there's one that I can certainly talk about that a kid got knocked down when I was essentially looking after him and he died, which was oh. horrific, you know. So I was night shift at the time, and then for me, um, that that really knocked, you know, rocked me and it rocked my colleagues. Uh, and it's that bit about recognizing that sometimes you have no control. You know, you can do your very best. And things happen the same things the same way as it happened in the community, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and it's sad that but you've got to have a supportive uh, group, you know, a group of um, managers, leaders, uh, and make sure you learn from these things uh, and, and can move on. So that did impact on me as a as a, a practitioner. Uh, and it's sad that but just recognising that sometimes you know you you are not in control. And also another th- kind of thing that you know having to give kids bad news and their families can't, you know. So I know that uh, when I was a, a, a manager elsewhere that we had to break the news to a kid that when his siblings had died, you know, there was a kind of terminal, terminal mm-hmm. illness in the family and, you know, the family members weren't able to do it. And it was a real, as much as it might sound a bit bizarre, but it was a real privilege to be able to support uh, the guy that, the, the, the lad's key worker, basically, to actually break that news, you know. Um, and I, I was there at the time, but I didn't have the strongest relationship. So the, the key worker yeah. done it, but I was there to support. And actually, that that was a horrible situation, but also a kind of privilege to be there and support that, that kid and his family during that horrific time in, in their life. So um, I think the learning for that is the bit about recognise that you know everything is not rosy, and terrible things can happen. But it's important there is a strength there within your organisation and you've got some sort of resilience as well. Uh, yourself, or you can build it, you can, you can, you've got to be mentally tough, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the mental toughness comes with knowing you've got support. Uh, and all the stuff I spoke about, about my development as a kid, you know, <laughs> uh, it's all that about, about having that support. And if you've not got it in your family, 
you go to find it in your community. Yeah. And uh, you know, some as we know, I mean, my my North Ayrshire's the second highest level of poverty in Scotland, second only to Scot uh, to Glasgow. You know, so with poverty, you know what comes with that crime. You know, yeah. um, and you know, every, drug abuse. You know, uh, drug deaths. Um, families been broken up. Uh, all that kind of stuff. You know, and I've experienced my fear share of that uh, personally. You know, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's that bit about you know making you know making sure that you've got that support network, and that's at home, but also in your workplace. Yeah. No, definitely. I think that's really, really important, man. Um, so this will be the last question um, that we'll do for the day, man. Um, so what advice would you give someone who's looking to start a career in CLD slash residential childcare? <laughs> we'll change I, it up for you. No, no, but I'm just kind of, I, 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 and I think that's a, a key thing, CLD slash residential childcare. And I would hope that one day we, we, we can you know, maybe kind of have it in there. You know, we're CLD the CLD community can maybe claim it. Uh, so my, my advice is make it a career. Give yourself options. Don't become stagnant and take every opportunity you can get. Because for me, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in just now uh, and having learned through the past where I've made mistakes, you know, in terms of practice. The thing that's helped me learn is that fusion of qualifications and practice experience. Uh, so they, they both go hand in hand. And I think the the... the, the the challenges or, the, or the, the risk is that if you get one, you've not got the other. They don't. They don't work. You know. So I feel very privileged to firstly have a conversation with yourself because it's a really good platform for for residential and for people taking a maybe maybe problem pose. You know, using a, a pillow theory term and consider for themselves. You know, or would they actually? You know, how, how do I actually feel as a practitioner? Could I claim? Kids in care has been part of my community and is part of my portfolio, if you want to call it that. Uh, and what would I need to actually be doing that effectively? And how is it these kids are, are, are become like, you know, I, I drove by my old workplace a few a few, a few few nights ago. There's big double gates outside the front of the building, outside the front mm-hmm. of the house. But the gates are actually open. You know, there's no, they're only shut. But it's actually invisible gates that are there as far as I'm concerned. That, 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 Kind of contain the kids yeah. in that house away from their community. You're thinking, why is that? You know, and there has been progress. There's champions boards. There's you know, there's various other kind of initiatives going on across local authorities. And I'm not saying it's all doom and gloom, by the way, but it's still that kind of metaphor of the invisible gates. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but I so that's pretty much it. Just um, keep you know, see it as a see see it as a career. Take responsibility for your own learning, and uh, you know, don't get stagnant because that's when you. You lose your authenticness, um, and you know, I keep it just keep it kind of real, I suppose. Aye, brilliant, nice one. Thanks very much, for, Joe, for uh, coming and chatting with us today, mate. Um, Not a I'm problem. Su- I'm sure that this will definitely give people food for thought and create conversations, uh, uh, and that's what we I, want I this to happen. I hope it was useful because, as I say, it's about that whole uh, imposter syndrome stuff. You know, it's like traditionally you wouldn't say, "Oh, this guy is he a CLD worker." Uh, does he belong within the CLD profession? This, you know, um, I, I am a, an associate member. I might, I might add, <laughs> in the Sanders Council. Now I, I can uh, register to be a, a full member, um, but it's that bit about I. Uh, I would love that to be a, a discussion point moving forward. You know, in the academic world, but also in direct practice.
Yeah, definitely, man. And here's hoping. Here's hoping. Thank you. Thanks so, for what going up. Cool. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thanks very much, Joe, for taking part today. It was really, really good to catch up with you, and I'm really glad that you're doing well. Remember, guys, you can follow us on Twitter at CLD Talks, where you can join the conversation there. And remember to turn on that notification button so you can get kept up to date with all future podcasts. Thanks very much. See you next time.